uh, last night, like uh, 1130, I could not sleep. I was tossing around fitless. So I know the right thing to do is to get out of bed, like yeah. walk around the house, do something else for a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, so I went downstairs in the living room and I put on Voices from the Valley, the audiobook. And I thought, I'm just going to listen to this for like 30 minutes and then maybe I'll start getting sleepy and I'll go to bed. And like 2.30 a.m. rolled around <laughs> and I completely gotten lost listening to these interviews. And uh, so I, I just want to thank you, Moira, for stealing a night's sleep for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you so much. I've actually never listened to the audiobook. Do they do it in different voices? Yeah, they're three or four hours. Good. Okay. It's excellent. They both listen to the audiobook. I read the book. So I think we, we it seems like we had like different experiences of it, but I did send it. I teach this class called work and meaning and I, uh, uh-huh. I which I co-teach and I sent it to, uh, um, my, uh, my co-teacher and we we're totally teaching it in, in the fall. Oh, awesome. So, I'm so glad. On the yeah. It's, you know, in truth, I, I just picked it up like half an hour ago and was remembering it. And it's, um, yeah, it'll be fun to talk about because we did spend a fair bit of time with almost all of these people. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you liked it. <laughs> it was great. This is the thing that's really creepy, though. So, so part of my morning ritual and how I do things, I have like a copy of the, I get, I buy a copy of the ebook. I have, and I listen to audiobooks and I make notes sometimes in the ebooks, but oftentimes, like if I'm doing the dishes or playing video games or otherwise dissipating my attention, uh, I, I will hit the the automatic thing where it will uh, Audible, the, the Amazon app, will flag mm-hmm. something for like a book, like a, a, a footnote, and you can go back later and. Most of the time, and it's gotten better and better, it will highlight the corresponding section in the digital text. Mm-hmm. Right? And I've gotten really intense about making sure that stuff's backed up and, and then uploaded to the cloud. Yesterday, as I was preparing the notes for this, and I don't want to read anything paranoid into it, the about 30 or 40 bookmarks that I had put on uh, <laughs> Voices from the Valley were all gone. They were all gone Uh-oh. on every single one of the, the, the devices. They were gone from the from the Mobi file, and they were gone from the cloud. So I don't know why that was, but uh, maybe it was the, the bit the line about the Jeff Bezos holiday that, that did it. There was... Oh yeah, I don't know because I think this one there. I did an interview with an Amazon engineer that's not in this, um, not in this collection, but mm-hmm. he does. Maybe this is what you're referring to. This cheeky Amazon engineer does reflect that I think he describes Amazon Studios, which at the time was spending very lavishly mm-hmm. on these various production projects uh, as a as a loss leader for Jeff's love life. Wow. <laughs> God <laughs> damn. <laughs> that was um yeah, so who knows? Maybe that uh that tripped some some switch in Amazon's actually, in my experience, incredibly sort of janky and not that functional content moderation <laughs> system. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I thought, I thought flowers were expensive. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just one more season of The Expanse. Whoever, who, I, I just want that to happen. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to tell whoever she is to go back to him and make him write her name on the moon or whatever the fuck, but I do want some more Expanse. Um, I had another uh, left field uh, ballpark question. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know uh, is there a word or, or how would you say thought leader in German? That's very interesting. I mean, it would just be like Gedankensleiter or something, but I don't know if they say that. If anything, my guess would be that it just gets eingedeutscht or whatever. Okay. I think people just say thought leader in English, but I don't know. So we, there's, no, like, there's no fewer in there. It's, it's not like a, 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 a okay, good. Because is it creepy sounding? I would say Leiter. My instinct is to say Leiter, but, uh-huh. um, but as we were talking about earlier, I'm actually uh, an imposter cosmopolitan. I'm just a... Uh, 
an Irish Catholic kid from Brooklyn. So I learned all these languages in college and later. So I can't speak with the authority um, of a new native speaker on that one. <laughs> it is an incredibly creepy phrase. Yes. I mean, in English, in a any thought language. leader. Thought leader. Yeah. I've yeah. never thought about that actually, but it is. No, Patrick was cogitating about this this morning yeah. and I was, I did, yeah. not, I did not know the answer. That's, uh-huh. I mean, have we asked Google, our great authority yeah, yeah, yeah. on translation? I'm curious yeah. now. I feel like lost leader has a vaguely Lacanian French element to it, whereas <laughs> like thought leader <laughs> has adorable well, fascism. French would be the leaders in, yeah. in at least in theorizing loss, right? <laughs> okay, we're going to see thought leader. Vordenker. Oh. Okay. Huh. Huh. That's not so sinister. So it's like a like a visionary thinking ahead type. Ah. Yeah, yeah Vordenker. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. There we go. Thinking ahead. I mean, yeah, that, that's like the opposite of sinister. That just sounds like somebody who's really well organized. Yeah. yeah. You know, like you, pa- you do your packing ahead of time. Yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> Act. Yeah, it's interesting because German is also so literal, you know, mm-hmm. it just means like the in front thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Executives with executive function, executive. unlike <laughs> the ones we have. <laughs> Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm Patrick Blanchfield. And today we are joined by a special guest, Moira Weigel, who um, is Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at Northeastern University. She's also a faculty associate of the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard Law School and a founder of Logic Magazine, of which we here at Ordinary Unhappiness are assiduous readers. Um, Moira is also the author of Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, an editor with Ben Tarnoff of Voices from the Valley. Tech workers talk about what they do and how they do it. She's currently at work on her third book about transnational e-commerce platforms and the world of invisible entrepreneurs, experts, and hustlers that make them. We have been wanting to talk to Moira for a long time, but the proximate cause of having her on right now is an event that is coming up soon or contemporaneous, or I don't know, maybe has already happened, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, which is a symposium in New York this weekend that is being put on by the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, N Plus One, the Goethe Institute, and the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, um, celebrating 100 years of the Frankfurt School. So we're going to get into so many things with Moira, Silicon Valley, the Frankfurt School, psychoanalysis. Um, Patrick, I know you also want to do another quick little intro. Go ahead. Yeah, if you don't mind, just hyping you up a little bit further, but also like uh, situating your work in ways that will be maybe uh, directly germane to our audience and what we'll talk about today and, and also just encourage them to check out your work. I think your work as, 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 a, as a journalist, a critic, and a pu- scholar and public intellectual, I think is is really remarkable. But also, I think in that kind of interdisciplinary work that you do or this transdisciplinary work that you do that doesn't sacrifice precision and rigor, you engage with terms or concepts or perspectives that oftentimes uh, seem to be opposed to one another or that people assume have to be mutually exclusive, right? So I think here about the ways in which your work will draw on qualitative, descriptive, 
uh, almost ethnographic interview material combined with critical theory alongside quantitative numerical studies from, from data science. Uh, and likewise, you weave together political economy and issues of, of, of institutions and the way platforms function and how they're funded with a very sensitive uh, approach to dynamics of libidinal economy, the ways in which people share or hate share, as it were, on those platforms. And in in particular, that's what I wanted to sort of cue us up here in that I think one thing that your work really does, because you're so historically conscious and because you work in these different registers simultaneously, is you, you, on the one hand, can point to what is new or novel or quote-unquote disruptive in the present moment, but also are capable of grounding that in longer-term narratives with the end result of demystifying and, or even sometimes like denaturing terms and narratives, particularly of progress, but also of like upbeat techno optimism mm-hmm. that are sort of given, like the idea of sharing, which is I think one we'll talk about. And I, and one thing liking, that, liking, yeah, or even I was thinking too about this probably now very dated phrase, and I please correct me if I'm wrong in attributing this to, I think, Stuart Road, or maybe it's, uh, I don't know, but the whole idea that, like, information wants to be free, right? Uh, yeah. And, and this, that's one of those things I remember hearing when I was <laughs> for first learning, like, Logo Writer or something, and it sounded so goddamn cool. Like, all these hackers were just going to help liberate information. But now, looking back on it with a kind of psychoanalytic lens, mm. I realized, well, I've never met information, right? I don't know what neuroses or complex information has, but, but more than anything else, information isn't a thing. It's, or if it is a thing, it's not a thing that wants anything. It's an inert concept. And when we say information wants to be free, what we're actually doing is sort of politically, but also aspirationally on the level of fantasy, articulating what we want information to be or what we would like information to be. In other words, we're kind of dealing with what I think a more critical psychoanalytic eye or critical critical theory eye or any of the different lenses you bring to bear would talk about in terms of registers of knowledge or power or desire or fantasy and disillusionment. And it's with that in mind that I think uh, we're really excited to talk to you about all your work and to go in whatever directions you want, but also have some questions for you too. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I'm so, um, I'm really touched by the introduction. I think, you know, I've worked on a lot of different things and it doesn't always cohere at the time. I think we've all been living through a sort of chaotic and bewildering um, political time for the past maybe 10 years. I don't know exactly how to periodize it. Um, but so it's really, I I am touched uh, to hear you bring that level of, of coherence uh, to my work. So thank you. I wanted to see if we could do a little ground clearing first, because yeah. we, we want to touch on a lot of things, but we do want to start with with the Frankfurt School, and we will certainly have listeners who are like steeped in in like Adorno and mm-hmm. Benjamin and Marcusa, and we're also going to have listeners who are like, tell us about what this thing is. Um, so I'm going to lay that task <laughs> at your doorstep if that's uh, okay with you, Myra, and ask two things. One, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about what the Frankfurt School was? So that's you know that's that's the first part. But then, what drew you? to Mm -hmm. the work of this, you know, very 20th century intellectual movement? And how does it it inform what you do now on contemporary topics and cultural forms? 
Thanks so much. Um, I'll do my best with the first question. I feel like I always have trouble scoping answers to questions like that, but I'll do my best with the first answer. And then the second, I think it's a question of how far down the rabbit hole uh, we want to go. The Frankfurt School um, is a term that people use to refer to this collection of thinkers, most of them German Jews, uh, who gathered around uh, a new institute called the Institute für Sozialforschung or the Institute for Social Research um, in Frankfurt in Germany in the 1920s and early 1930s. Some of the some of the hits that folks may have read in college, depending what they study, uh, come from Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer's collaboration, The Dialectic of Enlightenment. I feel as if, you know, if if one read for any kind of literature or media degree or art degree, probably you you were made to read Vata Benjamin's essay on the work of art in the age of its mechanical reproducibility. Um, at least once over the course of college, Benjamin was not an official member of the Frankfurt School. Uh, but anyway, the term refers to this collection of thinkers who gather around this institute financed by a a, an heir, I think I forget where the Weil family fortune came from, but by, by a wealthy young intellectual called Felix Weil that gathered with the ambition um, of bringing together a few different intellectual traditions and strains to interpret the character and pathologies of modernity in the 1920s and 1930s. And I think um, you know, there are different members who all have their own exact influences, but the most the most important project of the Frankfurt School or what um, is important for me is the way that they brought together uh, research and sociology sort of derived from Karl Marx and Max Weber and Georg Zimmer uh, with psychoanalysis, sort of Freudian psychoanalysis and uh, and also a fair bit of German idealism, sort of influence of, of Hegel and so and Kant too, uh, to try to interpret modernity and its sort of crisis and chaos in the 1920s and 1930s. Pretty shortly after Hitler came to power, the members of the Institute fled Germany. Uh, they went to Switzerland and France and England for a time. Basically, most of them landed at uh, Columbia University in the United States or in and around uh, New York and the tri-state area during the war. And they have, and the reason I, I want to stress this is because I think in a sense, the Frankfurt School is this one coherent entity is in a sense, if not an American invention, certainly a transatlantic invention yeah. of, of the war period. Mm -hmm. um, many of them uh, then are en enlisted in the sort of U.S. war effort against fascism. And a lot of the most canonical texts of the Frankfurt School are the ones that have been most important for me uh, emerge uh, out of this period where uh, Adorno and Horkheimer uh, and um, later Marcuse, also slightly maybe less well-known figures like uh, Robert Gutemann and Leo Leventhal are working on, um, on propaganda and ideology uh, from the United States. For instance, Theodore Adorno works on this, uh, what's called the radio, the Princeton Radio Research Project funded by the Rockefeller Institute uh, in the 1940s listening uh, to radio transcripts of demagogues, uh, including, it's not Father Coughlin, he publishes a book on Martin Luther Thomas. Sorry, he doesn't publish it during his lifetime. He does a whole bunch of analyses mm -hmm. under the auspices of the U.S. concern about fascist propaganda, mm -hmm. uh, Adorno, and then also these other figures I mentioned, uh, Norbert Gutenman and Leo Leventhal, uh, 
produces analyses of radio and the role of mass media in creating creating fascism or consolidating fascism uh, in connection with the American Jewish Council. I think it's AJC. Max Horkheimer, who's sort of the director, you know, is a writer and intellectual, but also serves as the you know the one who's organized and the director of the institute a lot of the time commissions uh, a series of studies that are called the Studies in Prejudice, um, one of which, uh, the Authoritarian Personality Study, which comes out in 1950, uh, became extremely influential and famous. Uh, but basically, so basically the Frankfurt School refers to this collection of thinkers who are trained in different disciplines, philosophy, psychoanalysis, sociology, who come together uh, to try to bring those critical paradigms together into a kind of fusion that's capable of cognizing the pathologies of uh, of modern life. Uh, they they go through this phase in the United States during World War II, uh, where they're heavily engaged in U.S. propaganda research uh, that has very direct lines of connection to the later history of multimedia and Silicon Valley digital media that we could talk about. Uh, after the war, some of them stay in the United States. Some of them go back to Germany. Uh, Max Horkheimer and Adorno go back to Frankfurt to reconstitute the Institute for Social Research. Uh, have an interesting history there. They, they, they reconstitute the Institute in Frankfurt, have a complex and very strained, strained and basically adversarial relationship eventually with the student left in Germany by the 1960s. Uh, Adorno uh, becomes sort of the enemy of the radical student left uh, in Frankfurt uh, by the 1960s, which is a complicated. And to me, now I'm old enough that I feel like it's kind of a sad story. Like it makes it makes me sad, yeah. <laughs> um, even though I think they were right uh, criticizing him and, and certain of their criticisms of him. Horkheimer continues to direct the Institute for the time. I'd say then sort of the second generation of the Frankfurt School comes uh, with Jürgen Habermas and Axel Honneth and these younger figures uh, who come up. And although early on Habermas in particular engaged uh, deeply with psychoanalysis, sort of turn in a somewhat different direction uh, than the first generation, uh, Habermas sort of spends, does his life's work on the basis of, you know, he's trying to get out of certain forms of pessimism that the first generation ends up in, uh, tries perhaps most famously uh, to, to recuperate sort of the positive or emancipatory potentials of modernity as a category and the public sphere as a category. And perhaps, I don't know how central or incidental it is, perhaps not incidentally that involves leaving behind a lot of the psychoanalytic stuff. Mm -hmm. What to me feels still sort of revolutionary and useful about their contribution is the way they bring together sociology and political economy with psychoanalysis, psychology, and libidinal economy. Um, and I think, in a sense, once one summarizes it this way, it sounds very basic, but to me, the insight that I come back to sort of again and again with them is the idea, you know, that our most intimate life, our family life, and so on, is itself historical and is structured, um, is structured by all kinds of historical, um, economic, and so on forces. And in that sense, the relationship between personality and society or pathology and society is always a dialectical so, one. So, and please tell me if this tracks, right? Yeah, and I, I want to flag up front that part of this account, which you just gave, which is so historically grounded and in depth, 
is also sensitive to how this, that the quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, the Frankfurt School is a term that the denotation or the meaning of which changes over time, right? Mm-hmm. And is something that, you know, it, we could say that it is this collection of institutions and personalities that has mm-hmm. this particular historical lineage and relationships among one another. And then that you that has all sorts of influences, intellectual or otherwise, right, uh, in, in the culture, whether it be through, you know, you describe, for example, like the authoritarian personality book as being like a, a exercise in proto-data science, right, or something mm-hmm. like that, or people's understandings of fascism, et cetera. But then also, it becomes sort of retrospectively constituted by other people in the contemporary right. Like, so for example, one way a lot of people will hear of the Frankfurt School is, well, they may not even hear it referred to as the Frankfurt School. A Frankfurt School. They heard it, hear it called the Franklin School in that remarkable parapraxis <laughs> by like right-wing commentators now. And they're like, well, this is just the, these are all these European cultural Marxists, et cetera. So there's mm-hmm. a kind of meta irony here uh, that's, that, that, not to get to too meta about the irony, but where you have this group of individuals crisscrossing boundaries of national boundaries, but also disciplinary boundaries and working through certain institutions to over, over a tumultuous period of history, as they try to articulate a theory of how individuals understand one another institutions and their place in history in different Mm -hmm. ways over time. And then that entire enterprise later gets caught up in these kind of caricatured hall of mirror appropriations, like name calling sort of like larger than life stories about personalities and institutions, which generally itself is also brought to serve a particular <laughs> reactionary formation that might be eerily familiar to, to what the Franklin School, uh, Franklin School, ah. just did it, to what the Frankfurt School themselves would have studied. Does that kind of, is, does that hold together as a sort of a statement of the problem? Totally. And I think that, um, you know, there's a reason that Adorno is so memeable. I feel like yeah. I always think of Adorno and his bathing suit in the cabana yeah. meme. Um, like it's right up there with the Susan Sontag bunny rabbit meme as one of these signifiers of a certain era of intellectualism that circulates in the culture. I think there is a hall of, I mean, reflexivity is such an important concept for the members of the Frankfurt School. And then there are all these sort of Hall of Mirror-like reflections, um, as you say. I think one thing um, that I've thought a lot about that strikes me when when you bring up the contemporary red, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, is that Horkheimer and Adorno, the members of the Frankfurt School themselves, you know, create this theory. In creating a theory in which political economy and libidinal economy intersect They're sort of creating a theory in which, on the one hand, domination, a desire to dominate vulnerabilities, certain certain dynamics that they describe are sort of trans-historical aspects of human character. Um, And then at the same time, uh, they're creating a theory that's very specifically grounded in the specifics of sort of early 20th century history. And that tension uh, between you know, God, I feel like a reactionary myself talking about the human, but something that might be part of the human, uh, more or less universally or transhistorically with particular historical conditions is like a theme of their work. And then it's also something that I think comes up when they're invoked now, because, um, because their ways, as you're saying, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, that they still really matter for the right, but what is the right talking about when they mm-hmm. talk about the Frankfurt or Franklin school? Uh, not the text of Adorno, uh, I think, not mostly. 
Uh, and yet there's something to it. And there is this Hall of Mirrors quality where I've sort of sometimes found it kind of crazy making to write about because on the one hand, certain things feel so applicable to the present and then the present situation is so different in other ways. Uh, and these thinkers do circulate as signifiers, particularly in an age when digital technologies make it easy to uh, to search and replicate without really reading things. And in, in listening to you describe the origins of the Frankfurt School, did I say right? Frankfurt mm-hmm. School. You got it. <laughs> I'm just making fun. Yeah. Of it. <laughs> I just love that as a theme of this episode that everyone's saying Frankfurt School. I'm, I think it's perfect. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, in, in listening to you uh, uh, describe the origins of it, I couldn't help. It's Moyer. Most of my exposure to your work has been your work analyzing Silicon Valley, and to hear you mm-hmm. talk about the Frankfurt School, which. If you think about it, a wealthy heir pulling together intellectual luminaries who, I guess, in modern parlance, you could call thought leaders of their time <laughs> in order to process the chaotic data of their day in order to have some kind of outcome that should change things, understanding for the better. And then you carry on through time into the tech giants of Silicon Valley that you've been writing about, which is, again, wealthy heirs, super wealthy people pulling together thought leaders in order to accumulate, capture, and process vast amounts of data in order to better understand the chaos of the day and deliver some ambiguous product or benefit to the world coming off of it. I think it's interesting that it sounds like you were drawn to the Frankfurt School at a pretty young age, and now it seems like as you found your footing in your career, you are still drawn to collectives like this that are still kind of doing similar work, but maybe in more perverse ways. Yeah, Yeah, every movement needs their angles, right? Like you need daddy angles uh, to, uh, (laughs) you know, I feel like you read Marx's diaries and it's like he has boils and he like can't afford new sheets or whatever. (laughs) Um, Every ambitious collective of academics and adjuncts needs their angles. Um, Yeah, that's actually really... I feel kind of, what do the kids call that? Like telling on yourself where it's like clearly part of my fascination at an unconscious or semi-conscious level with these thinkers is about family form. I don't know, like these forms yeah. of collectivity. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always used to say, it's like, okay, you're, you become a writer to find your friends. And I thought that everyone felt that way. And then I was like, oh, maybe that's really sad. Cause I realized that other people maybe didn't think of it that way, mm-hmm. but that it's like, you write to find your people ideally in a certain way. Um, and so, yeah, I think for me personally, probably that theme of like collectives and people working in collective intellectual projects is both part of what draws me to the Frankfurt school you know, with relations of of admiration and gratitude or whatever. And probably also part of my, I worry sometimes rather childish fixation on people like Peter Thiel and the networks, the networks around them. Um, you know, the bad men who have no place for women and are talking about my guys. But yeah, that's very, I'd never thought about it that way, but I think that's right. What, what I'm thinking about here too, is this way in which like, and Tan, I think your comment just about like these, somewhat parallel forms of how this these configurations of let's just call it like institutions and persons being brought together to understand history as it happens but also as it has happened and hopefully to produce some kind of change in the future using both analysis of data and the articulation of new ideas right? Mm-hmm. How that as an abstract format or like an abstract like configuration set of terms, if we want to call it that, like a matrix or something, that that's something that, that can go, can cash out in a variety of directions, right? <laughs> and as you begin, you know, and you begin your essay with, on, on the authoritarian personality about this being like confronting it very directly and, and maybe in a kind of like ambivalent family relationship kind of way where you're like, well, actually working on with this, with this 
proto data science text where, where, where Adorno et al. are like, let's try and figure out what is how the fascist personality is conjured using data. You have to reckon with the fact that the institution that seems to have actually realized this is a big data firm like Cambridge Analytica. And that, yeah. <laughs> and that many of the features of, I think you have this line, which is really excellent about like, of what the the fascisms that the Frankfurt School is trying to understand in terms of personality and personalization, but also in terms of mass mobilization, have eerie, almost hauntingly overdetermined uh, resonance in a present moment where fascism isn't necessarily mass movement, but it's like networked, right? I think is the phrase you use. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think what I want to want to kind of tease out from there specifically and go to pivot back to Abby, who will be able to articulate this question better, is like this theme of like making things personal or of like personalization mm-hmm. as like a key topos. Yeah. Could yeah, you, yeah. No, that, that we were, I'm, I'm looking at that, that quote from Moira in front of me as well, which was, which really struck me too. And, and, and I guess Patrick and I were batting back and forth ideas about like personalization and what it means in in this context. And so I guess I want to say something like, how do the dynamics of social media interaction and political appeals hinge on personalization? So in making things Mm -hmm. personal, deploying personal antagonisms and and so forth. Well, I think just to scoot back a minute, I think that there is this quite literal history uh, that someone like the media historian Fred Turner has written very eloquently about where analyses that the Frankfurt School produces and other people, but the Frankfurt School very importantly produces of mass media in the era of historical fascism Mm -hmm. help inspire uh, ideas that somehow personalized or interactive or more individualized media are um, are inherently democratic or a solution to the problems that mass media posed. And to just say a little bit more about that, in the 1920s and 1930s, there's this real consternation about what's happening in Europe, in the United States, right? Um, as always a desire by U.S. Americans to avoid the continuities, to avoid Hitler's deep admiration of U.S. propaganda efforts in World War One, deep admiration of Dred Scott and sort of American uh, race law, and to to other what's happening there. And I think part of how American intellectuals deal with this question of like how has this country that we think of as a bastion of philosophy and music and art and so on become fascist is that the answer becomes mass media, mm-hmm. right? But it's like these these demagogues use mass media to hypnotize mass audiences into following them. Interest, so historically, I think these analyses help inspire experiments with interactive media, eventually digital media that are supposed to be more democratic than mass media forms or the crowd form. Um Ironically, what was striking me, even as I summarized that, is that I think the ways that people talk about, you know, how Germans became Nazis because the radio or because of Lenny Riefenstahl movies in the New York Times in the 1930s is extremely similar to how they talk about, um, you know, why white working class people are becoming Trumpists. I mean, there's so many scare quotes and my hands are just flying everywhere. If people could see me. Um, but it's very similar to the discourse about algorithms and platforms today, where there's this sort of uh, what communication scholars call a media effects or hypodermic needle 
theory where it's like, oh, you know, my uncle was a nice guy until he saw this QAnon meme on Instagram and now he's a fascist or whatever. Um, and I think, so anyway, there's a historical trajectory that connects the critique of mass media to optimism about digital media mm-hmm. and interactive media. Um, and then there's also this pattern of recurrence that's very interesting to me, where in both the 1930s and onward, and now I think there's this really strong popular narrative that's very fetishist, right? Like this is an um, this is a fetishist narrative about technology, um, what mystifies relations among people as a relation among things, um, mm-hmm. in which technology, whether it's the radio broadcast or the film camera then, or the algorithm now, uh, is somehow acting upon people, uh, and turning them into fascists. Uh, I think as always this cut this narrative is a way, this kind of narrative is a way for the speaker to like avoid actually being reflexive about their own position and, and what, you know, this narrative is flattering to the onlooker, right? Because it means the onlooker is the one who can tell who's the dupe and and who's the manipulator and what's disinformation versus truth and so on. And when you say that about continuity, and maybe this is very Frankfurt school of me, but what strikes me is that on the one hand, there's, there's this literal historical continuity mm-hmm. where worries that mass media are creating fascists, um, partly fueled by the pop reception of Frankfurt school work, help inspire folks uh, in the 1960s and onward to develop this sort of countercultural idea of multimedia that's very influential on Silicon Valley later on, you know, very directly influential on why someone like Mark Zuckerberg will talk about sharing, making the world more open and connected in this way that feels uh, very 60s. And then at the same time, there's this kind of persistent misrecognition of the relationship between technologies and and movements or individuals by experts, I think, where um, there's a real temptation for academics and other kinds of experts to be able to identify the technology as the problem. Um, but the fact that these radically, that these two technologies that are supposed to be the opposite of each other are both the problem uh, should clue us in that it's never, it's never just the machine. Um, At the risk of, of doing some violence that's reductive, just like give a, give a couple of like really concrete please, examples yeah, here about some of this stuff. Like, first, yeah, okay, okay, I'll do some violence. I'm thinking about like one feature of the authoritarian personality um, essay, right? Uh, or rather book in which you sort of uh, zone in on in your essay is like, in terms of mass media is one of the examples that Adorno, so we have stuff like, like Lenny Riefenstahl or the radio, right? So like you're a German, you're upset about various things. And in this sort of template, again, this is a reductive one. You finally hear some like compelling Aryan voice on the radio be like, actually, you're not just like, Jorg, like loser, you are a <laughs> you are a slighted member of the proud Aryan race. And guess what? Who your enemy is? Who did this to you? It's the Jew, right? So suddenly, you previously were in this position of social enemy, and now you are identified personally, and you're given a personal enemy, right? And you're and you're jacked into a personal collectivity, and then you become one of thousands in the sand of a, a Lenny Riefenstahl flick, right? And I think just, sorry, if I can intervene, I think it's also like really crucial to the Frankfurt School analysis of that dynamic is this idea that there's a kind of sadomasochistic identification between Georg Loser and Hitler or, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl and her Berg film mountain movie traipsing around um, that specifically works like this, Um, you know, that there's a sadomasochistic identification in which the listener simultaneously um, 
you know, unconsciously experiences their sense of fear and vulnerability, but also more consciously, sadistically identifies with the leader and their ability to punish the outsider or be violent to the outsider. And in the Frankfurt School analysis, specific features of mass media facilitate that identification, right? So Adorno um, and Leventhal and Goetemann are very focused on radio and what Adorno calls the psychotechnics of radio Mm -hmm. and the idea that this... um, that, you know, this kind of broadcast technology can bring the voice of the, of the Führer close up and into your home. Uh, I think for Vata Benjamin, who again, isn't officially a member of the Frankfurt School, this, his interest in the close up and the way the film camera can make the leader close and yet very big at the same time is important. And so there's this, this core theory, which you also were saying, I, sorry to interrupt, but I think of sadomasochistic identification, um, with the fascist leader, the authoritarian leader uh, that is directly facilitated by these aesthetic or technical properties of mass media. Um, And then, of course, there's the political economy piece that Horkheimer and Adorno further develop where the vertical organization, rather the vertical integration of mass media as an industry sort of reproduces this at every level. Um, but yeah, that was my attempt to do reductive violence to myself. I think that I that's know. that's super clarifying, and it, it's and so just to I want to complete this analogy to and then to get to the tech yeah. stuff. But like, so this is why to, another example of mass media or something that happens in mass media that Adorno cares about is like all this astrology stuff. Yeah, right? I love and, the book on astrology. Right. <laughs> and, and, and if, if, if I take it's it, so weird. <laughs> So weird. So delightful. What's the title again? It's uh, uh, Stars Down to Earth. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. And we've already, researchers of the podcast may know, we've already talked a little bit about like the ways in which like identify, using some of the terms of of astrology, much like using certain types of pop psychology terms can be a way for individuals to relate to one another. Be like, well, you know, I'm having a very very Gemini morning or something or somebody else be like, (laughs) oh, this, I'm, I'm feeling very ADD today or whatever. Like you invoke these categories and they're a way of, Instead of getting into the specifics of what bother you, it's like a token that you can exchange to express yourself and handle other people. But for, as I take a way of relating by not relating, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, as you paraphrase in a very lovely way in your essay, Adorno seems to see something a little bit different here in the way in which, like the the astrology columns in mass media, which are consumed on a huge, like enormous quantity that it doesn't really have a parallel today in in in, in you know in, in Weimar Germany. Um, are like they give you these categories that you can write yourself into. This is what, and they both like you identify yourself as one of these signs. You also have a certain type of destiny or like a certain type of articulation of what's going to happen to you or not happen to you. And it's both vague and specific enough that you can be drawn into it. But also, as you write, it produces this kind of combination of like destiny and unseriousness, but also mm-hmm. of like depoliticizing passivity combined with an orientation towards expertise and the latent possibility of violence. And so even whatever you think about astrology, you know, this may be accurate. And, and as you write here, like it's um, the astrology column took seemingly inexorable social forces by which people consciously or unconsciously felt oppressed and externalized them, projecting them onto the stars, which it characterized as having already determined everything in advance. By misrepresenting social forces as natural and placing them at such remove, it rendered them impervious to human question or action. At the same time, astrology encouraged readers to turn to these very symbols of the forces that oppressed them for aid. When they did, the help they received came in the form of commands to adjust themselves to the rhythm of alienated life and work. 
by encouraging readers to exercise the prerogatives of narrowly individualized instrumental rationality, astrology thus conditioned them to reproduce the irrational contradictions under which they lived. Both the fascist demagogue and the astrology columnist succeeded because they found ways to manipulate people according to the typedness of their personalities and the psychological dynamics that produced it. And, and that's sort of like, we're going to give you a name and category for who you are, interpret your experience in those terms, but also, even as that clarifies things for you, makes you kind of dependent and allows us to basically orient you as like both politicized and passive. And you even say like, you can, you, they'll get more violent if, 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 if these mm -hmm. systems come under a certain type of pressure. Seems, again, this theme eerily mirrored or like hauntingly reproduced in the supposedly personalized, not mass media space of something like Facebook, where it's like, what type of person are you? What category are you? And then here's who's mm -hmm. bothering you today. Or as you, the example that you give in this paper, the fact that Facebook's algorithms, and I mean, we should ask what an algorithm is, but like included <laughs> the category of like Jew hater as a thing that you could be classified yeah. by the platform and marketed to. Yeah, can we just talk about this for a moment? Just like, what, the, what does it mean to be a person in relation to like mass culture, but also relative to algorithm cultures? I guess I don't know what an algorithm yeah. is. Can someone explain to me what an algorithm is? Part of why I'm fascinated by the astrology book is kind of a hinge between the work on mass media and then how critical theorists might think about algorithmic media, digital media today, is that in the astrology column, which Adorno analyzes, we're dealing with a form, as you say, that is at once mass and personalized, right? It's like published in a newspaper that's read by hundreds of thousands or millions of people a day. Uh, and yet it is set up in such a way that it seems to speak directly to the individual reading it through the mediation of the type. What type of person are you? What star were you born under? Incidentally, uh, Adorno, so Adorno wrote that book in the early 1950s. He came back to LA for a little bit uh, after going back to Germany and wrote that book because he'd been fascinated when working on the authoritarian personality study uh, to find, and I don't want to go too into the weeds in this, but when they were coming up with the different Likert scales for these massive surveys that they distributed to thousands of people to try to figure out what the potential fascist looked like or the potential authoritarian, uh, Adorno was fascinated by the fact that belief in astrology and certain kinds of supernaturalism was the single strongest predictor of high scores on the other fascism scales. Uh, so I think, you know, if one were to want to do a TLDR of the authoritarian personality, <laughs> I'd say it's like, it's all about projection. <laughs> it's all about projectivity. Um, and the more someone's inclined to project, probably the more authoritarian they are. But there was this finding that belief in astrology it was a super strong uh, predictor that led him to this interest that led him to read this book for which he did like a content analysis of astrology columns. I think the form of the astrology column, and I think you're absolutely right that it shares this in common with the sort of pop psychology uh, kind of advice is that it is at once mass and personalized. Um, and therefore importantly um, for Adorno, I think importantly for me anyway, uh, gives the individual reader the possibility to exert some kind of agency, but it's a very constrained agency. So it's like, you know, if you're this kind of person, you know, you should take a risk between three and 5 PM or whatever it is. <laughs> um, and so there's this 
this possibility, it's a kind of interactive medium, the astrology column. And I, I think in a way we could talk about the user of a column rather than. Yeah. A, yeah. 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 I think that's, that's exactly right. right. So I, I'm interested in thinking about the astrology or pop psychology column as like a proto algorithmic or proto interactive version of this. I think the other really important paradox um, in terms of how it manifests in social media personalization I think it is an authentic dialectical tension is that is this right so social media both do and do they both are and are not more democratic than what came before them someone like Mark Zuckerberg uh, would say that a platform like Facebook democratizes the spread of information democratizes news it used to be that if you wanted to broadcast your point of view to a bunch of people. Uh, you needed uh, to be Lenny Riefenstahl with Hitler's backing. Or you needed to be with a Hollywood studio with tons of money to buy equipment and so on. The existence of a platform like Facebook means, and many of us, I think, have been the beneficiaries of this, that really anyone uh, with the wherewithal to turn on their computer microphone or type on their keyboard or you know maybe invest in the podcasting mic can broadcast their views uh, to potentially anyone in the world, whether or not anyone's listening is another question. At this, So there is an authentic democratization that happened there. It's not just bullshit <laughs> when someone like Zuckerberg says that they're democratizing the spread of information. At the same time, and as a condition of that democratization, an entity like Facebook is concentrating information, power, wealth, at a level unprecedented in human history in the hands of literally this one guy who basically exerts control over the company. And so I think there's this paradox, which maybe is worth talking about with personalization, with contemporary sort of algorithmic personalization, mm. where it is true, although now Twitter is such a, I don't even know if it's true about Twitter anymore, but maybe, maybe the entshittification of social media is, is undoing this. But anyway... <laughs> It is basically, that's a term of Cory Doctor's enshittification. It's like all commercial platforms tend towards enshittification. And I think it's right. It's true. We're certainly seeing it on, on display. Right I think literally I'm getting ads for like Christian fathers on Instagram. And I'm like, what, what's going on? I'm getting on? ads to join the border patrol and also ads <laughs> for things to like break into cars. It's like be a criminal <laughs> or be the law or maybe be both. I, I don't get it. It's fucking nuts. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like somehow because my Ben and I are very private about our kids on the internet for the most part. And so somehow, I mean, I'm sure Instagram and all these platforms like knew that I had children before, but somehow for years I wasn't getting hit with like mom fluencer content because mm. because I think, you know, I didn't put pictures of them on Instagram or whatever. And somehow suddenly some flip has switched and now it's all 100% like dr becky telling me how to heal myself so i can gently parent my kids and then also christian dads talking about prayer pauses <laughs> but, but anyway it's like personalization there is this authentic dialectical tension i sometimes think about it as like they're two foci of an oval although i don't know why i think about mm. it that way um where media personalization so you know it used to be there were three news channels if you want to watch the news you watch them now you could consume potentially billions of different kinds of information uh, but that decentralization is predicated on increasing centralization of power over uh information and how it flows uh and i think that's like the authentically dialectical tension at the heart of 
of contemporary personalization. I think for those of us who aren't that technical or who maybe think of ourselves as more, I don't know, but at Stanford, they call them the, there's some term they use at Stanford for like the hard ones and the fluffy ones or something that my friend Anna Wiener has a theory that it's like, that's the origin of like everything. And Silicon Valley is this slur that different Stanford undergrads use for each other. Um, But uh but anyway, it's like the full of the softies and the hard ones or something. For those of us who are who are think of ourselves first and foremost as like humanists, I think there's a temptation sometimes to think, you know, the platform knows everything about me or like I'm it's that the algorithm is so good. But I think, um, you know, it's not magic. It's based on producing these these types and categories that are actually can be quite simple like that. I'm a woman in my 30s who went to some DSA events uh, tells them all they need to know uh, to show me an ad for a streaming service playing Norma Ray while I hate read a Forbes article or whatever. It's not magic. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good segue um to turn to your your recent book um co-authored with with Ben Tarnoff um Voices from the Valley and and we we have many questions about it but um since on ordinary unhappiness we are obviously very focused on psychoanalysis we wanted to start with uh the figure that you start with which is you know the founder or you know if we're talking about like types or categories like this could be elided sometimes into like the tech overlord and we've already invoked many of them um, today. Um, but so in in the book, you explore how in Silicon Valley, the idea of being a founder has, has a kind of cult status and certainly like an enormous amount of cachet, right? Um, and so I'm going to quote you for a moment. So Moira says, quote, starting a business is seen as the highest form of human achievement. Most startups fail, of course. For the founder, however, failure is never a source of shame. Rather, there is something ennobling about it. Close quote. So I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about that sort of like mythos of, of the founder um, in general. Um, and you could take that wherever you want, of course. But I, I think, you know, both Patrick and I are really interested in what functions that this sort of archetype of the founder or tech disruptor or a uh, thought leader, which by the way, we're not calling Adorno, just, just to be clear, going back to a previous <laughs> book, um, Adorno would never. Um, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, what, but what functions does this archetype do for, for consumers, for legislators, for, for investors? And because um, again, we're thinking in this psychoanalytic register, you know, what fantasies do you think that this kind of founder veneration underwrites, you know, for our contemporary way of life in general? What anxieties does it palliate? What hopes does it offer? Yeah. I mean, it's such a fantastic question. And I haven't, you know, before this conversation really thought about it in this precise frame. Um, But I think to riff, there are a few things that strike me like right away about the founder, not this to be clear, not this empirical person who we talked to, right, her, but right. um, although maybe him too, uh, but uh, but the figure of the founder. And I think, so one reason 
I think the founder is sort of venerated and admired is because of this idea that the founder bears risk, right? That the founder is the person who is going to make something new uh, in the world. I think, you know, the idea that the, I feel like there are terms like entrepreneur that also serve this function, which what's his name at Brown has written a bit about, I'm spacing out about his name, Alex Gurevich. Um, I think that there's this valorization of the founder because the founder is supposed to be the person who has a new idea in the world, um, who bears the risk of making it happen, sort of coordinates people to make it happen. I think as so often with our projections, the irony is that perhaps the precise opposite is true. I think um, often when startups fail, uh, the founders do all right. And it's yeah. the other people who work there uh, who have a harder time. Cause they I think, you know, upwards. and there's something about the, the, I think, you know, someday I want to write a book. I've gotten distracted with this Amazon project, but someday I want to write a book about like the political philosophy of venture capital, yes. <laughs> but there's something about VC um, that works this way too, where there's this idea um that venture capital is able to be heroic and visionary and flexible in this way because it takes on risks that traditional R&D couldn't uh, or that markets wouldn't bear. Uh, whereas, in fact, the logic of venture capital is is to insulate investors mm-hmm. from risk by investing in 100 companies, 99 of which will fail and one of which will be Uber and scale globally. Although ironically, Uber is also a total failure. It's right, like I haven't looked right. up the number recently, but Uber loses, last I looked, loses like $2 billion a year. Yeah. So I think that there's this investment and it feels very niche and it's probably no accident yeah. that a lot of these guys are like obsessed with nature, but in this idea of like the heroic figure who makes change in the world and bears the risk of doing that. Yeah. The interesting fact that in truth, it seems as if the precise opposite is usually the case. Can I ask a question about that? Just because I, I was trying to put this in like psychoanalytic terms, we're thinking about like mm-hmm. childhood development, right? And I'm thinking about this. So one of the one of the founders that you interview has this bit where, basically, despite having been super successful, right? Or rather, just well, the paradox is like he has a product, and it gets bought, and then. But they're not actually the company that buys him out is not buying the product. He's aqua hired. He's yeah. aqua hired, and they're buying him just because it's quote unquote new blood, which is a really you know Peter Thiel overdetermined phrase. I'm not saying anything about is literally consuming blood. I would I would never actually say that literally. Uh, figured he but, is yeah. literally consuming yeah, he's literally blood. blood. They're, okay, they're literally oh, vampires. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> so that said, uh, there is this. He, so he's brought in because he has the aura of being a risk taker who could create mm-hmm. great things. And the co- what the company does basically then is they take the thing he created and shelve it, like mm-hmm. destroy the code because another company might have it. And then he proceeds in his words to continue. He says, I mean, everything I've ever worked on has failed. I've worked on some ambitious projects at several of these big companies and none of them succeeded, but I've still been rewarded and promoted. And I think that's a good thing about Silicon Valley. Failure isn't looked down upon, which is a positive aspect of tech culture, right? And he gives all these reasons why things fail. And, you know, they're all about timing and hardware, software, all this technical stuff. But I was trying to think about, like, what that does to a person, Mm -hmm. right? And, and and like, just what it might be to exist in a life where 
because clearly he's very stressed about his college loan. He says something like, I went from being stressed about my college loans to being stressed about focusing on interesting problems, et cetera. Yeah. And later, I'm sure we're going to talk about how that's very different from like the insecurities and stressors of the people who work elsewhere in the pyramid there. Mm-hmm. But like, I was thinking about it, narratives of like development, yeah. right? Or if you were to give a child a situation in which they never have to encounter the friction of something they want not working out, Right. Or if you were to reward them or if they were to experience a world in which no matter what they do, the best possible material outcome happens regardless. Mm. I don't know if that would result in a well-adjusted human being. And, and I wonder if there's something about precisely this combination of being fetishized for taking risks while actually being rewarded, even as every risk you take is totally hedged away. And, and not only that, but like yields literally nothing. I, I just have to, I can't imagine what that does to someone in their view of the world, their own agency, or what risk even means. Mm-hmm. Like, is the telos of that like some type of like solipsism? I, I'm, just, I'm speaking here as a millennial who's taken lots of risks and they don't work out, so I get demotivated. What about this guy? Like, like how does this not fuck up someone's head? <laughs> well, I'm not sure. It's funny because I was hearing, perhaps I'm being unfair, I was hearing a little bit of judgment in your voice. I actually feel enormous personal affection uh, for this for this particular I'm sure, person. He's a lovely guy. He seems very reflective, but I'm just like, structurally speaking, I'm just like, what does risk yeah. mean to this person? It's a fascinating question because I think, and I think it does tie back to this theme of scale yeah. and this structure of hedging that we were sort of just talking about with venture capital, but is also true with these huge companies where they're doing a million different things, most of which don't work out uh, at any given time is such that you can be a highly salaried, highly valued employee within one of these companies, perhaps acquired from proving yourself through your own project that they bought and killed so that you never compete with them. Um and you can write software all day long for years that never ships. Or you can make a feature that, you know, 800,000 people use and like, and that this giant corporation decides they're not going to end up using because it's, you know, that's a trivial fraction of their user base. And I think it's very interesting to think about what that does to a person. I mean, in the case of the founder, and it's probably no accident that this is part of why this person was willing to talk to us yeah, yeah. or we became friendly with them. Uh, I think it led to a certain political journey or a reevaluation of what success mm-hmm. might mean in terms of what it does to people. Yeah, there is. I mean, I'm thinking about other industries too. Like I know screenwriters who work for years and make a good living and nothing ever gets made yeah, <laughs> yeah. that they that they write. So I think tech is not perhaps totally anomalous in this way, but it is, it does seem like unusual in the extent to which that can be true. And that there's at once this, this valorization of the founder, but then it's like everyone who doesn't go on to literally become Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates may just get hired by Google or Facebook or Amazon or whomever um, and end up working under there under the big daddy of, of Bezos <laughs> and uh, Sergey Brenner or Zuckerberg or whomever. Yeah, I think that there was, I mean, I was really compelled in this particular individual by a sense of kind of melancholy and mm. um, yeah. uncertainty that it opened up for them, uh, but then did lead them as they talk about, I think toward the end of the interview to get involved in certain political projects or now, mm. again, I can't say who it is or what they work on mm. now, but they're doing something very different now um, awesome. to work on other kinds of things. Uh, and that was very striking to just one thing about the book and how it came about. I think uh, Ben and I happened partly just like by chance, although not entirely by chance, but to sort of 
become very involved. They're sort of fellow travelers with this tech worker movement in 2017 or so, which I did some writing on. Ben has written about from within the tech industry. Everyone always forgets this about Ben, but he's primarily a full-time employee at a tech company. I was really struck by how many people I met who had become politically active in some way, mm-hmm. who, first of all, were almost all in their late 20s to early 30s. And maybe mm-hmm. it's just that that's how old I was. But I actually came to think there was something about that age where like you've been out of college for a while. Maybe you drank the Kool-Aid that, you know, a venture backed startup was the best way to make a positive difference in the world. Um And then by 28, you've like seen that not work out a few times. Mm -hmm. You've seen how there's no way you're going to be able to afford to marry and have kids in San Francisco. Um, You've stepped over homeless people on the way to Twitter headquarters, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. There's this kind of disillusionment that seemed to set in for the key figures of this movement at that age. Uh, And it was multifactorial. There were a lot of things. Um, But I think it also, I at least came to think from talking to a lot of people who'd been on journeys kind of like this founder that there was something, there was some something about them that had led them to originally have faith in the idea mm-hmm. that a vendor back mm-hmm. startup out of Stanford was the best way to change the world mm-hmm. and then um, had been disappointed, mm-hmm. led to their political activism. Mm-hmm. It was like that failure was itself mm-hmm. politicizing in a productive way for some of them. Um I mean, I think just to contextualize personally, like as a an East Coast intellectual, like I moved to San Francisco kind of by accident uh, because of my partner Ben's work uh, in 2015. <laughs> um, and it's very easy to come in and listen to people talk about wanting to change the world and to be kind of an asshole about it. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you were an idiot to ever think that. <laughs> but I don't know, over time, getting to know people in this movement, I I... I think I came to take it more earnestly or to like to be really struck by the sincerity mm. yeah. that I them, that had ter- driven them early on and that then kind of got disillusioned and produced these new, mm. these new political possibilities. So anyway, sorry, those are just some no, reflections. No, no, that's, that's well taken. I, it really comes through in the, you know, I was, I, I went into it because I, I don't feel like techno optimism has ever been like accessible to me as a mode of, of yeah. being. Um, and so I, I came into it ready to be like, all right, let's get through the founder thing because I don't believe, (laughs) you know, in any of that, that, and, and I found it actually so poignant. Um, and like, there's this sense of like real, like anomie and, uh, of like the narrative of politicization, um, makes a lot of sense, but I, I guess, what am I trying to say? Something like from, from, Outside Silicon Valley, although as a person who spends a lot of time in in the Bay Area, but is like a humanist, you know, I'm very used to, to um, you know, in the academy, what I would think of as like STEM folks or, you know, think outside of as tech types kind of being like, well, what you do is this thing that's really soft. It's really, it's not technical. It's maybe it's kind of fluffy or wishy-washy. Um, and, and I guess I always think like, oh, okay, like part of being a humanist um, or somebody who has a, you know, lives a scholarly life is a real comfort with like ambiguity and it's not all about metrics and hitting targets and all of that. And then when we get this narrative um, of like, oh, this person has has made a lot of money. They've had an enormous amount of, of, of options. Um, but also, yeah, it's all been in some ways, so nebulous in yeah. this way that I don't at all associate with people who work with things that that at least are narrativized as concrete and real, 
which is which is like I mean yeah I mean that's the, that's the power of that kind of story yeah. I suppose I, I should say my, my own two cents I, oh, I just yeah. remembered they call them fuzzies at Stanford fuzzies, fuzzies. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I should say like I, I want to sort of re- revise what I said earlier particularly if this person is listening I actually found myself part of that intensity there I wasn't moralizing against him per se right, right because I actually found a lot of aspects of his story profoundly uh, moving and very resonant with some stuff of my own yeah. sort of situation like this this like and in some ways, I should you know, so like the bits about him is having an immigrant parent, right, or his being his being unable, his parents just not understanding what he does, right. And in some ways, perhaps even some of the rancor that I directed, it, it misdirected at this at this person who was a character in the book, right, maps onto the the, the luck of the draw that I you know initially chose to move into a, a, an institution, namely academia, which wasn't working, right, and in which like my parents were like, well, just why not take your resume to another to the local college and see if they're hiring? I'm like, no, that's there are no jobs, and also that's how <laughs> campus security gets called on you, right? That's like that's not so it's so 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 it's like a different version of the your parents don't understand what you do, except it's yeah. it's, it's it's instead of making money, you get that, right? But 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 the the thing is, I think. And I think that the journey to politicization is not one that I, I can, people get politicized for different reasons. And I don't, I don't feel it's my job or our job to be like, this is a wrong way to be politicized. Because people yeah. have to be hundred percent like politically pure in some sense all along. Right. Nor still to like turn people away by being smug about it. But I, I do think that what I was also thinking about in the backdrop here and what I was trying to sort of think about in terms of this system of incentives and the insulation of privilege, right. Um, once acquired in the situation as opposed to being native, uh, is the way in which you could do have, in the case of these larger-than-life tech figures, right, a kind of overlap between the cultural valorization of, like, this person is is success. They are the future. Mm. They represent our hope. And if you have any skepticism about their products, it's because you don't believe in the future and the human spirit. Like, well, all the way all the sci-fi novels are all about, like, the human spirit in the end. That's how we defeat the aliens. Like, they may be a millennium, like, more advanced than us, but we have that plucky fucking human spirit, right? And so, We like, all just watched Independence yeah, Day. Yeah, but, but, like, somehow, if I'm like, well, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm like, Elon Musk's cars <laughs> kill lots of people and, uh, like, they, they're, they're, they're bombs. Like, well, how dare you offend the human spirit, right? But but that's what, so what I'm thinking about there on that macro level though, right, is with a figure, and I am thinking about Musk, but I'm also thinking about Bezos and some of these other ones, right, where it's like the amount of things that Elon Musk say has promised that he will do and deliver and that have come to nothing, right, whether it be bringing water to all the homes in Flint to uploading our consciousness to the cloud, et cetera. Like it's pure like faith-based creedal appeals. There it's, these things, don't, they don't materialize. They feel almost craven in the hopes and fears that it's really back in that like fascist strongman mode, right? We're going to give yeah. you a destiny. We're going to save you. Also, John Quincy's politics go that way too. But that as opposed to it being an environment where he's like retained by the company because he has the aura of potentially being creative and at least, you know, if he got hired by someone else would be bad, right? He's rewarded within that structure. Here we have like a person who's the most wealthy person in the world. Right, so there's something about the way in which the tech founder represents like the this built-in success, nothing succeeding like success on the people on the part of people who don't just who who aren't just like producing things that get shelved or producing things that get like superseded, but actively doing harm while still being sort of this 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 object of hagiographic praise yeah, and, and veneration. Yeah, that's that's I think the thing that I, I wonder about and. I don't know of any other industry that quite resembles that. There are these dynamics of identification between 
the founder who starts, you know, who, as Peter Thiel once disparagingly called Hulk Hogan, is just a single digit millionaire. Um, <laughs> and a figure like Mark Zuckerberg, where, you know, every founder who goes through Y Combinator or, um, you know, one of these accelerators is encouraged to think of themselves as potentially the next Bill Gates or the next yeah. Mark Zuckerberg or whoever it is. And there's probably something about the organization of work in these office places and the belief in like horizontal management structures or thinking about the Facebook office. You know, Zuckerberg is literally in this like glass cube in the middle and yeah. everyone else is in yeah. this open plan office around him uh, that encourages like spatially and physically and literally that identification. Um, so I think there is, and that brings me back, I think it's not a thread we should go down, but to like the 60s counterculture ethos that sort of permeates tech work uh, in a certain way, like these ideas about flat organizational structures and community and so on. Um, yeah, I think it encourages everyone to think of themselves as the next, you know, as a Bezos in waiting. That's, yeah. So I wanted to see if we can pivot a little bit from the founder who's the big at the beginning um, and maybe talk a little bit about like the labor politics of, of the book. Um, and I, I think this came up before um, you alluded to, to your involvement in what was it? 27. I'm, I'm looking at so many pages of notes right now. I think it's 2014 when tech workers coalition mm -hmm. was found, okay. co-founded. And then it's, I, for whatever reasons, I'm sure solipsistic or personal to me, I always think of the start date as right before the Trump inauguration. There was this protest at mm. Palantir organized by TWC that got a lot of media coverage. So yeah. and I think the Trump era had a lot to do with it, the takeoff of this movement. So yeah, yeah mid-2010s, let's okay. say. Okay, let's say mid-2010s. Um, yeah. So, I mean, something that 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 in my view, and I was saying, I'm, I'm totally going to teach this book, um, uh, you know, in in a class where we'll start probably talking about alienated labor, you know? Yeah. Um, but you don't stop, you know, the founders, the beginning, but, but you move, you also move past that figure and it kind of recedes um, by the end of the book. And, and a lot of that is because you really self-consciously follow activists in using the term tech worker. Um mm -hmm to describe um, everybody who's a part of this sort of enormous human ecosystem um, that underwrites the prominence of, the, of these founders. So you interview, um, you have an interview with a technical writer who writes manuals that, that makes their code usable by others. You have a chef who cooks steak at scale. You have a masseuse. Um, I loved the chapter about the masseuse. Um, I'm going to finish my question, but I just want to say I love that chapter. Who, but this masseuse who's trying to like repair the repetitive stress injuries and like the, you know, rock-like shoulders and whatnot. The texture of this book, you know, is it really in showcasing all of these different tech workers, you reveal this world that's really different from the sort of C-suite Silicon Valley imaginary that I think gets very effectively disseminated elsewhere in the country. Um, you know, so this is a world that's characterized by by temporary employment, um, by really stark differences in racial and gender representation. Um, and, and, you know, so there's, 
there's a lot of skepticism also. You know, it's not just this sort of unalloyed techno-optimism um, that, you know, even from the beginning, it, it's like that's that that idea has fallen right from the beginning. So I guess I want to ask you a little bit about what inspired this project um, and what you found throughout the course of doing these interviews. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, Ben and I were living in the Bay Area in the mid-2010s. Ben was working at a tech company. I was trying and failing to write my dissertation doing various things to avoid writing my dissertation. So this phrase tech worker had been coined um, and had come out of, uh, to my knowledge, I think I'm cited on Wikipedia on this, so I hope it's true, uh, <laughs> by a woman called Rachel Melendez, who was a former cafeteria worker at one of the big campuses and ended up working for Unite Here as an organizer. Uh, and a tech worker called Matt Schaefer, uh, who I think came to know her through community organizing. Rachel had been trying to get engineers or white collar workers who worked at tech firms to support this fair hotels pledge, like by not using certain hotels for conferences that were bad to unionize labor. They came together and formed this organization called Tech Workers Coalition, which really took off after the Trump election for reasons we could talk about. I think this idea of the tech worker uh, was a new one to both me and Ben, this term when we first encountered it. And I actually, it's funny, I, I should have I should ask him, I don't know how Ben first heard about these folks, uh, whether it was through work or what. I remember there was a day, it was a couple of days before the Trump inauguration in 2017, uh, when this group was going to do an action in Palo Alto and Ben couldn't go because he had a real job. And so he said, could you go to Palo Alto <laughs> and see what's going on with these folks? Um, and so I did. And I met them and they were great. And they sort of became the center of our life in a lot of ways in San Francisco for the next year or so along with Logic Magazine. But I think this idea of the tech worker, this phrase which Rachel and others invented, was like a provocation, mm. clearly. And the meaning of that provocation or the import of that provocation was to say that everyone who works in the tech industry, you know, the tech industry is an industry, <laughs> sort of the radical idea that the tech industry was an industry and that everyone who worked in it was a tech worker and that there was a way in which coverage of Silicon Valley, both hagiographic and critical, actually, was always just about, you know, the CEOs or the C-suite or maybe, you know, those goofy white guys from Harvard and Stanford who had on tap kombucha and kale in their cafeteria and massage therapists on site. But, and Rachel used to say this, I remember the first time she said this to me, or I heard her say it to a group of us, she said, if you just count the people who are there, Facebook is a, the largest group of people at Facebook is Latino women. Mm. There are you know, three to four service workers in Silicon Valley for every white collar engineer who gets written about in an either hagiographic or, or condescending profile about kale. Um, and so, and I should say, I think the journalistic coverage has gotten a lot better since the mid 2010s. Um, but anyway, I think this idea of the tech worker was supposed to catalyze awareness of this entire class of people who are almost never represented and also of their points of commonality with the higher paid either contract workers or the full-time employees in these firms. Uh, and so it was the provocation. I think it's no accident uh, that a lot of the leaders of this movement were people of color and women of color um, and that there were points of contact, certain points of contact uh, among 
there are certain sources of ways that people could identify with one another across class differences as a result of that. But anyway, I think um, it's like this idea of the tech worker was supposed yeah. to make people think dif- think different um, yeah. about about Silicon Valley firms. One thing I could say here, just in terms of if your work, right, and this is stuff we, I'm afraid, for reasons of time, we probably won't be able to get into, yeah. right? But is one of the most powerful parts for me reading the the Voices from the Valley bit was the testimonials from workers, like tech workers working, you know, in what you might know, food services or uh, uh, technical writing labor, et cetera, realizing that theirs was a position of very, of very different risks from sort of the fantasy of risk, but also a very real shared precarity. And that that produced possibilities of solidarity and recognition among them. And, and I think that that was such a remarkable, it's a remarkable theme and it speaks to the work you've done with logic and, and even the gesture that you, you make in the book where it's like, well, we all live in the Valley, whether we like it or not. Like the map of the Silicon Valley, yeah. like it is, it, the, the map, is, the, the territory is, is much smaller than the digital map that sort of interpolates all of us was like this was remarkable to me because I, and to go back to the Frankfurt school, you know, as we sort of move towards uh, closer on this, like I, I don't, I don't associate reading the Frankfurt school with hope per se. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and there were things that were hopeful in, 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 in this, in, in, in voice from the Valley, among other things, like the, the data scientist guy being like, AI isn't going to take us over. Don't worry. It's just another <laughs> stick, right? That, that was very reassuring to me. I found that so reassuring. Yeah, it was very, very helpful. So people need to, re- <laughs> if listeners, we buy this, but it was also like this idea and again, I, I I could spend another hour talking with you about about your stuff about like hate sharing or like the ways in which we basically negative affects intensify online and how this thing sharing which seems good actually is a way for people to basically do the the context collapse thing where they're like nice short n- nice story about this thing but what about like violence in Chicago why aren't you talking about that when they don't when they actually they are all about loving violence in Chicago and couldn't give a shit so like this way in which like <laughs> the worst impulses of citationality and of derailing happen and as you empirically show like intensify on these spaces and so much of what a lot of other tech journalism does and from like I think some experiences of it is like Oh, the internet is a giant hate machine, and these are this is this is a terrible like quote unquote neo feudal space, and everything is just getting worse. And, but then, and like I'm sucked into it, even if I'm a refusenik or like because like the ring cameras, etc., or because Prime Day is happening today, and I have to I can't afford things otherwise. That like, oh, is Prime Day. Yeah, it is Prime yeah. Day. It is two, Prime two, day. two Prime Days too. Uh, but it is this like contra that what underwrites the entire project as I take it and what it's populated with are examples of people actually finding solidarity. Like the the food services worker being like, well, actually I just learned that the majority of people at Google are are temps, right? Or I had these hacker types showed up. Contractors. Contractors. Yeah. Or or with VCT vendor contractor uh, temporaries, right? What was so remarkable was that the teleology didn't necessarily seem to be ruled by solipsistic, self-impressed tech overlords or uh, another type of atavistic fascism, but actually possibilities for social connection. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just wanted to, to articulate that as something that's in the work and in the work that you just described, which is so rare and fantastic and frankly inspiring um, and, and made a difference to me as I read it. And I think to all of us, I'm thinking Abby and Dan, not on that, but, but I just wanted to sort of say that too, because I read people are going to be listening to this and be like, oh my God, like, it's it's we live in like the worst we live in like Horkheimer's like worst like opium pipe dream. Uh, he's having a very <laughs> bad trip, but instead, like there are actually some possibilities for variation. And if anything, detecting the continuities allows us to perceive to perceive new 
ways out, maybe. Yeah, I hope so. I think that it's like, you know, utopias and dystopias are always false, right? It's like the techno-utopianism was false. I think in the past five years, there's been this like tech critical turn where I think I, I joke, I actually have a whole shelf on my bookshelf mm. where it's like, there was a whole generation of books about founders that was like, they're such geniuses. And then now there's a whole generation that's like bad, bad founder, even a bad boy. And they all just have their faces on the cover. It just like sucks. <laughs> face. This is face and Teal's face. And it's like, these are the same stories. They're stories about the same people. Yeah. Um, there's a scholar called Lee Vincel, who I think coined this term crita hype. I think he coined it Ooh. to talk about this. But it's like, you know, whether they're we're talking about them as geniuses or evil geniuses, that elides quite a bit of the reality of how these firms come into being and get made and how things happen. And I don't know, once... I feel like at Logic, we used to say this thing that the opposite of hype isn't criticism, it's specificity. Oh, uh, nice. And that it's like when you go into, in the case of Voices from the Valley, the real workplace, um, and go into these daily interactions that people have. Uh, now, I think post-COVID, there's a whole different situation with tech organizing, which we won't get into because of the remote workplace. But um, what you find is very different from either the utopian or the entirely dystopian. Yeah narrative um and there's plenty i mean there's plenty to be horrified about don't get me wrong but i guess we try to keep faith that by leaning into the specificity of these interactions and experiences and building new kinds of collectivities uh that there is something a bit more optimistic than adorno in 1954 saying that the astrology column is <laughs> makes it clear that all americans are just total fascists yeah. <laughs> or whatever it might be and i think both of those things come through really beautifully in the book i i just enjoyed it so much um, oh thank you i always me... figured no one read it <laughs> thank you no, <laughs> um, i wanted to ask can you tell our listeners a little bit about logic how it came into being what it's all about yeah for sure um so logic is a found a nonprofit foundation primarily publishes a magazine uh that a group of us started started talking about in 2016 i think ben and i were living in silicon valley we had some other friends living there and we we were we would talk all the time um about our sense that that we wanted a place that could have these these discussions about technology and what it was really like that were a bit closer to the industry, closer to the machine, and also not split uh, between what we used to call the sycophants and the scolds, mm. that they were sort of the West mm. Coast outlets like TechCrunch that were just like Xeroxing <laughs> PR statements from firms. Mm -hmm. And then there was, you know, like, John Franzen in the New York Review of Books or Zadie Smith being like, your Facebook friends are not your real friend are not friends or whatever. Um, and we thought there was a rich space um, between and, and underneath or alongside this kind of discourse uh, that we wanted to make room for. Uh, I said this earlier, but I want to stress, I think that there uh, has been, there's now a lot of this kind of thing. Uh, so I think that the situation has improved. But at the time, I think like even the major like the New York Times and the Economist only had a few journalists in the mm -hmm. Bay Area. There's, it was still just being covered as a business story, mm -hmm. um, not as an everything story. And so we wanted to start this magazine. We'd had a bunch of conversations about this with our friends, Jim and Krista and Xiaowei, and uh, and also Anna Wiener, who ended up not being in the founders, uh, but named the magazine and was central to those early conversations. And 
I always laugh because we put our kind of manifesto online in October 2016 and couldn't have anticipated the kinds of, I mean, frankly, as someone with a bunch of white working class Trump voting relatives, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was less shocked, I think, than maybe some people about November 2016. Um, But I think we couldn't have anticipated the kind of reaction that the Trump election would get in the press and in the tech industry and so on, or this movement that would take off in its aftermath. But so we started the magazine in late 2016. But I always remember as like a pivotal moment uh, that our friend Anna Wiener had written this amazing story that then became the basis of her book, Uncanny Valley, about her time working in the industry. And Nikhil Sabal from M plus one was in town in the Bay area. And we were doing like a reading from this M plus one issue with Anna and Anna's story was so popular. I feel like, I think I remember correctly. I think it broke the M plus one site because it was so viral when it came out, that might be false, but it was widely, widely shared. And, um, I had written some like sad critical essay on slow cinema and like Nikhil was in town. So we had to go through this humiliating spectacle of me reading from my essay with Anna reading from her amazing story. Um, but I remember it was a Friday night and Anna was going to be reading from Uncanny Valley. And we were at this book, this bookstore called Green Apple Books in the Park, which yeah. is not that central in San Francisco. And it was a Friday night and it was like, packed it was like standing room only super sweaty people going out the back door wanting to hear anna read not me to read about (laughs) but i remember in that moment that that for us felt like a kind of proof of concept that Mm -hmm. we're like actually there are like a ton of people who work in this industry who are interested in reading thoughtful like thoughtful but non-condescending and engaged representations of it so anyway we started it in 2016 this tech worker movement really grew in late 2016 and early 2017. And I feel like we became sort of fellow travelers with it. Um, Although I think every person involved in logic had a somewhat different relationship to that. Uh, We published a magazine three times a year for a number of years. uh, And then just recently sort of leadership of the magazine has transferred and it's in a kind of new chapter as logics uh, being headed by Khadija Abdurrahman, who's based in New York. You know, anyway, I could tell the story of that, but it's it's in a sort of new incarnation now. Uh, but we really wanted to create a space and bring together people in the tech industry who didn't think of themselves as writers necessarily with activists and academics and scholars and writers thinking about this space uh, to describe it in a way that was neither uh, utopian nor dystopian, but felt closer closer to the reality of it. Uh, so that's a very digressive answer. No, it's, it's such a great masthead and, and it's new incarnation. The masthead's also amazing. And I'm hoping that we can have some of these people on in the future. And also I realize we've kept a lot of this conversation centered around the, the Frankfurt school, but there's so much else in your work, which is always <laughs> a cycle on the but there's so much else in your work, whether it be on dating or about right wing sort of affects that I feel like we have only barely scratched the surface and that hopefully we could, but we could we'll have you on. Some yeah. Links to some of yeah. it in the, some of your writing in the show notes yeah. for our <laughs> listeners. Thank you. Yeah. Moira, before we go, um, if our listeners want to learn more about union organizing in tech, what groups or stories should they follow? I think um, one place that comes to mind is that there's a website called collectiveaction.tech uh, that was founded by a group of folks, uh, some of them who'd been involved in TWC, some who came in from other places. But that 
is a repository that I think should be up to date of, of different collective actions uh, in the industry uh, that also offers a way of getting in touch with some of the organizers. Uh, so that that would be where I'd send folks first. If people want to follow you on social media or keep track of your writing or the like, what where should they go for that? I'm sorry to say that the best place at the moment is probably twitter.com. Um, I tweet as at Mara G. Weigel. I have a personal website that I'm in the process of redesigning that isn't up at the moment. Uh, or Google uh, will turn up my faculty page, which also has has writing on it. Um, but I've had my head down deep in this new project, so I feel as if I haven't been writing much uh, at all. Uh, but twitter.com, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been just like such a pleasure to uh, um, revisit some of your writing, to to read some of it that I hadn't encountered before. Um, and just to, I know there's like dialectics through, like running through <laughs> all of it, but but really I'm just, it, it, it has been like such a pleasure to spend my weekend yeah. like immersed in your writing. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, this is so much fun. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Um, we will be back next week. In the meantime... Just a note to say that Ordinary Unhappiness is ad-free because we are supported by our Patreon community. To support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Ordinary Unhappiness. Um, and also, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Thank you so much, folks. This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield, Moira Weigel, and Dan Yowell. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken. <laughs>